agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm, I'm doing great. That is good to hear. I am doing just fine myself. And, you know, before we get going, uh, I'd like to give a special thanks to Sean, Dustin, Jack, Andre, Derek, Dan, Greg, Heather, Bernie, and Vinny for helping us out with contributions to our new pod- podcast audio mixer. Uh, last week, I said if we could get it fully funded, I would make sure that we at least doubled the number of midweek interviews we did compared to last year. And I'm really happy to say that we we met that funding goal and we will most definitely bring you at least double the number of interviews and maybe potentially some other midweek and other extra episode kind of things that we had last year. So thank you all so much. We really do appreciate it. All right, so today we are going to be talking about, well, of course, Russia and Ukraine, uh, a few stories about the Federal Reserve, interest rates and uh, nominations that didn't happen or were withdrawn, uh, the possibility of a COVID surge and what we're doing or not doing to uh, take care of that, daylight savings time, will it be permanent? Well, if Ted Cruz has his way, it will be. And Joe Biden and the Ninth Amendment, yes, a Ninth Amendment story, it could be a first for the politics guys. Anyway, uh, we have all that coming up and we will get started with it in just a second. Okay, Jay. So, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is now past the three week mark and Russian forces have yet to meet their main objectives. And, you know, what even a week ago looked to be kind of a slow but seemingly inevitable fall of Kiev might not be so inevitable after all. In fact, there were some analysts suggesting that Ukrainian forces could potentially be able to fight the Russians to something that looks like a standstill even. And, you know, and if that happens, it'll be in no small part due to the efforts of the United States and other Western countries to provide Ukraine with a lot of badly needed equipment. And this week, following an impassioned address to Congress by Ukrainian President Zelensky, President Biden announced that the United States would send $800 million in military assistance to Ukraine as part of that $14 billion recently approved in the fiscal year 2022 budget. The equipment provided will include 800 Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, 9,000 anti-tank weapons, and 100 drones. In making the announcement, Biden referred to Putin as a war criminal amid multiple confirmed reports of Russian bombing of civilian noncombatant targets in Ukraine. And while that's certainly significant, the amount of support that was pledged by Biden, it falls short of Zelensky's request, which included uh, more longer range anti-aircraft systems and the no-fly zone over Ukraine. Also, the House of Representatives this week overwhelmingly approved revocation of Russia's most favored nation trade status for so by a vote of, damn time. Yeah, think. a vote of 424 to eight. And all 
eight of the no votes came from Republicans, a, a group that included uh, the, uh, I guess I'll call them the inflammatory trio of uh, Boebert, Gates, and uh, Green, as well as Thomas Massey, who uh, rarely passes up an opportunity to be on the no side of a lopsided vote. Uh, Massey's also happens to be the representative of the Kentucky district in which I work, as well as he's been a past guest on the podcast, and he was really an interesting uh, guest, I think. But anyway, uh, the measure is expected to quickly pass in the Senate. Now, as international economic uh, ostracization takes its toll on Russia, the, re- the rhetoric from dictator Putin has grown more and more aggressive. And the Russian military doctrine of escalate to de-escalate suggests that, well, the use of uh, some sort of weapons of mass destruction isn't necessarily off the table. And in the case of tactical nuclear weapons, this could have potentially horrific consequences. According to one simulation run by researchers at Princeton University's program on science and global security, Russians... Russia's use of tactical nuclear weapons could result in the death of over 91 million people within the first three hours. That's I I can't even imagine. Um, Now, there were reports early this week that Russia asked China for military assistance, reports that were denied by a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson as malicious disinformation. And on Friday, President Biden spoke with President Chinese President Xi, that was believed to be their first direct conversation in months. And of course, they talked about Russia. Now, it was said that Biden would make make it clear to Xi that the U.S. will not hesitate to impose costs on China if China chooses to directly support Russia. And I'd say Beijing has sort of tried to play both sides to this point, saying that while it recognizes the sovereignty of Ukraine, it also believes that Russia has legitimate security concerns that were not being addressed prior to the invasion. So once again, Jay, we have an awful lot going on here. And I thought maybe we could start with U.S. aid to Ukraine. Uh, A number of Republicans are saying that the Biden administration isn't doing enough. For instance, Mitch McConnell this week said, well, we're not doing nearly enough, quickly enough to help the Ukrainians. <laughs> President Biden needs to step up, step up his game right now before it's too late. So what do you think about that? I mean, is it just sort of a, well, we have to say something negative about the president from the other party or uh, or, or is there you know a point that a good point that congressional Republicans have here? I think it's a, it's a, it's a good point. I you know obviously there's it's Republicans have sort of an easy uh, easy uh, role in this. That you can always say, well, you can always do more, but I think in this case you can. Um, you know, example would be what we talked about last week and the uh, supplying the MIGs to um, allowing Poland to supply the MIGs uh, to the Ukrainians, um, but uh, uh, m- more missiles, uh, uh, more anti aircraft, anti tank weapons. Uh, Keep it coming. Uh, I mean, I think I think these those are are fantastic things that need to be done, and I, I think there there are plenty of steps short of a no fly zone, which puts um, you know American and Russian pilots toe to toe and necessarily invites a confrontation. Uh, that that can be done. Um, I'm not a military expert, and I I can't walk you through absolutely what all those those uh, options are, but uh, I. I think there there are some, and we should look at this as a a, a do absolutely everything short of, um, uh, you know, actual confrontations with the Russians in um, uh, in Ukraine, um, and and so I, I guess you know related to this a little bit is, um, 
sometimes Biden reading the stage directions um, <clears throat> again, uh, for example, saying, um, hey, you know, we're not going to have a no fly zone. Uh, I don't think we should have a no fly zone. I, I, again, I think that would be a bad policy. Um, but I think it's it's also bad to go ahead and say that. Uh, let's let's let the Russians worry about what we're going to do um, and not not say, you know, don't worry, Vlad, uh, we won't do this. Don't worry, Vlad, we won't do that. Um, and, and not not make clear where these lines are. Um, uh, we, we've said things about uh, obviously if one inch of, of NATO soil is attacked, uh, we will respond. Uh, I think that's 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 good. Uh, as far as it goes, but um, uh, I, I am, you know, I guess again, Mike, you know, old Cold Warrior kind of kind of thing here. I'm I'm all for whatever we can do, um, uh, short of actually engaging uh, Russian troops. Um, uh, we need to do it. And you know, the tendency, of course, is to focus on what what we're not doing and what we could do better. And certainly, but I I wanted to, for a point of clarification because I can hear a lot of folks saying, "Well, geez, this this is Jay, the Republican talking points. Biden is horrible and awful, a senile old man who's not doing anything right." And my sense is well, that I didn't, I didn't yeah, say that. No, no, time, I, no, I'm just I'm sort of <laughs> I'm I'm projecting, and so it sounds to me like. For the last couple of weeks, in fact, based on that, what your position seems to be that, well, what the Biden administration response hasn't been that bad, but it could be better. Right. I, I would say the Biden response is, uh, I'd say, a solid B plus. Yeah. And of course, solid that's plus it, maybe even an A minus. That's not the sort of thing that congressional Republicans are going to say, because that's just not the sort of thing you say when you're the opposition party. So, you know what? The other guy, he's doing a pretty good job, but it could be a little bit better. That's not really the sort of thing you do in politics. But uh, and since you are not running for anything, you can actually say that. I wanted to make that clear. But I, I wanted to get to that point uh, about we talked about this last week a little bit about Biden saying what he will not do, reading the stage directions. You say, you know, I had a student who came up to me after a class this week and said, Biden's too predictable that he said, you know, uh, Putin didn't do this under Trump because Trump was really unpredictable and Putin didn't know how we'd react. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that was an interesting point. Oh, I think that's exactly and, right. And so but but I think maybe it's worthwhile considering the relative merits and risks of unpredictability here. And, and certainly I think you're right that uh, it, it's possible that you can basically give Putin the sense that, well, he has a blank check as long as he stays outside of, of, of NATO territory, right? So, you know, the other possibility is to go the other way on it and to say, you know, we have no plans to commit troops or directly intervene at this time. But if Russia employs, I don't know, weapons of mass destruction or mass terror attacks, we might, we've, we may reconsider that position. Is that the sort of statement that you think would be like a a better thing or just say nothing or, or what do you think? I, I would be in the say nothing camp. Um, you know, and, and maximum I, unpredictability. I, again, I hesitate because you, you do. You feel there's, a, there's a trap uh, in, in terms of um, saying, well, we won't do this. We won't do that. Or the alternative saying we're going to draw these red lines and then um, Putin calls your bluff and crosses the red line. Uh, at which point, if, if you don't follow through, then you've got a big, uh, even a bigger problem. So I, I, I like the idea of the, um, you know, strategic ambiguity, um, that we, uh, we, 
we speak uh, uh, very seldom on what we're actually going to do um, and uh, rather speak through our actions. And can you, right? see, can, I mean, can you see any downsides to that? Or is it always best to be, it's always best to be completely inscrutable? Oh, I don't, I don't say, I mean, you, you certainly, you send signals, right? I mean, and that's what I mean. You send signals through your actions. Uh, you arm the Ukrainians heavily. I mean, you, you, you make the statements um, uh, regarding uh, uh, how this is an atrocity and human rights. And, and I think Putin's right to even call him a war criminal. We can talk about that in a minute. Or uh, Biden's right to call Putin a war criminal. Um, uh, but but you you don't get into the tactical. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're not going to do. Um, that's that that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, because because um, I think you make I, it clear we're real mad, and here we're doing a lot of stuff. Right. Um, and you don't know what else we might do. Right. And, um, and I think well, I guess what I'm getting at here is I think there's an important distinction to be made between not putting all your cards on the table and just being wildly erratic. Yeah, because the not putting your cards on the table. Well, that's that. I think there's a lot to be said for that. But kind of just kind of going off and, you know, strange angles all the time. That probably, I think, actually raises the risk of something bad happening. And so, well, I guess why uh, my reaction to my students comment was kind of two ways is that like, you know, there's a point there. But also we want we, we want leadership that doesn't seem erratic. And I don't think Biden's been erratic, though. I think there's certainly you can make the case that he shouldn't have said come led with a lot of the things that we won't do. And of course, at this point now, once you say that, then you kind of lack the credibility, even if you were to say, well, we might reconsider that. Like no one. Will, right. I think. Right. Believe no, exactly. That. Yeah. So I think also it, it depends on the the other party that you're dealing with. Right. Um. It, and the the comparative strength and the comparative ability uh, to do something or not do something. Um, if uh, 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 we started getting threats from, uh, say, Cuba, right, uh, that hey, we're going to invade you, we're going to, uh, or, or they're, they're, you know, take steps to we're going to attack Southern Florida, we could we could very easily say, uh, you do that, we'll flatten your island. Period, and it it would be credible and it would be believable. Uh, and it would would get the message across. Um, so, I mean, you have to you you can make these big pronouncements and say, here's a red line, as long as you really believe you're able to in, uh, willing and able to enforce it. Um, and, and in this case, you know, we do have to look a little bit at what are the constraints that, that we have. Um, so, uh, you know, whatever, whatever we, we do, you know, however that threat is conveyed. And again, I prefer to convey it, uh, sort of, uh, sort of, okay. Uh, uh that, that we, it's, it's a credible one. Yeah. Well, you know, I, you mentioned earlier, you're certainly no, not certainly, but you are no military expert and I, I'm not either, but I think also that sometimes there's a tendency to say, well, we should just sort of across the board give whatever aid we possibly can but without 
really appreciating that not all forms of aid are the same. And of course, you know, President Zelensky is going to ask for anything. You got slingshots, send slingshots, whatever. But like, for instance, there are uh, some people who actually are experts uh, that have argued that increasing the long range anti-aircraft capabilities of uh, the Ukrainian forces or even attempting a no-fly zone wouldn't necessarily even, uh, not, not to mention, you know, increasing the risk of escalation wouldn't necessarily even be the best use of our resources because at this point, most of the damage that's being inflicted has been through uh, the Russians' artillery and their ground forces. In fact, uh, the fact that both sides have been somewhat reluctant to commit combat aircraft, at least to an extensive degree, because uh, their their capabilities there aren't so great. For instance, uh, and this goes back to Crimea. After the Crimea invasion, uh, Russia was put under a lot of sanctions. They lost some contracts for pre- precision-guided munitions. And so because of that, they've had to rely more on dumb, unguided munitions in their planes, which means that the aircraft have to fly slower and lower, which makes them more uh, more targetable by things like stingers and, and that sort of thing. And so my point is, is that there are a lot of these factors going in. And so just saying that, well, we should just give them whatever. I mean, we need to be cognizant of the fact that, well, while we'd like to do as much as we can, there's a there's a limited supply line, right? There are bottlenecks. And so the question is, well, what do we need to get them first and most of to be the most effective? And just everything all the time is not really an answer because of real logistical constraints and also tactical considerations. Yeah, so I, I get that. I get the um, the uh, prioritizing argument uh, that that look, you know, maybe we can get you this, but it's going to take longer, and it might not be all that helpful. Or we can get you a whole lot of that, uh, which we think will be more helpful. Uh, so I, I, yeah, there's there's some sense to that. Um, what troubles me is the uh, you know when Zelenka says, "Man, we could really use some some planes." Um, which to me seems like that's something you could always really use, right? Um, uh, especially if you have a, a slow, bogged-down force kind of trying to uh, make its way across your country. Um, and, and you know, the West saying, well, you don't really need those. You know, here's what, you know, it's, it's, it's very much like, um, to paraphrase uh, or to put in a different, uh, again, different term, well, the, the folks who argue against... Uh, look, uh, someone says, hey, look, I really believe I need a gun to protect myself. And no, no, you don't. Uh, But again, let's let's let Zelensky make the call as to what he needs and what he doesn't. Well, again, I mean, I've read reports from some analysts who suggest that given the quality of Russian air defenses uh, and given the fact that or given the fact that these these Soviet uh, MiGs are are certainly not the most advanced thing in the world, that what we'd be essentially uh, giving the Ukrainians and spending a lot of time and resources and the possibility of of escalation by Russia would be essentially uh, very slow-moving, expensive coffins for Ukrainians. And when we could be doing something like you know, these kamikaze drones, which are a lot less expensive and have can give, you know, a certain large percentage of the capability at a lot lower cost. And so this is the sort of thing I'm talking about in in that it's easy to just say, well, we should just give them more of everything all the time. But I, I think that people who are just making calls for that and not considering what the actual tactical situation is are being irresponsible. Yeah. Um, again, I, I, um, I, you know, when you want to talk about, uh, 
slow-moving coffins, I mean, um, you know, apartment buildings uh, come to mind. I mean, that's, you know, that's what we're we're dealing with. And if if you're the president of this country that's that's having civilians being killed, and you say, hey, someone says, hey, would you like some some uh, fighter planes? Um, then by all means, yes. Would you like some drones? Yes, I'd like those too. Um, now again, if if you want to talk about bottleneck and and what gets you know what 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 gets there quicker and more efficiently, um, I think that's an important conversation to have. And and also you know I, I want I do want to give credit to the Biden administration on something else, uh, and that is I think there are a lot of things we don't know about in terms of intelligence intelligence uh, and intelligence sharing uh, and assistance in that realm um, that we don't hear about and we won't hear about. Uh, that that's making a difference, um, and it's it's hard to measure. But I, I you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want it to let it be said I'm I'm, you know, giving them short shrift on on that uh, because I do think we we are, or at least I, I certainly cross my fingers and hope um, <clears throat> that we're doing that. But I my guess is you know some of the successes that the Ukrainians have had uh, are, are due in part to the assistance that we're giving them uh, on on that end. You mentioned, well, one of the other things we mentioned that we wanted to get into is Putin, the war criminal thing. And you you mentioned it. You wanted to talk about that as well. So what do you think about that? I mean, is well, two things, I guess, really. Number one, is Putin a war criminal? And number two, even if he is, was it the right thing or a smart thing for Biden to say? So, again, I'm going to. you know, sort of buck what what a lot of people might might say as far as I'm. I I I think it is. I mean, what else what else do you what else do you call that? Right. I mean, what else do you call intentionally targeting civilians? Um. Uh, in in what is an unprovoked war? Um. Yeah, I think that's 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 the only the only word for it. And I think the West needs and to, to a large extent has has exhibited and gotten to this, this moral clarity um, that, you know, this, this was, you know, back, back in the day, um, Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union evil empire and everybody kind of chuckled at him. Um, uh, you know, Oh, Oh, Ron, how, how unnuanced, uh, how, how, you know, silly black and white. And this is the kind of talk that we don't need. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think we do. And I think there's, there's there I, I get the idea that uh well by calling Putin a war criminal you are removing a potential off ramp. Right. Uh, that that's uh, what I wanted him. to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I don't think I don't think Putin wants uh or would take an off ramp uh at this point. And I I think what what else do you say? Uh what else do you do you call it? I mean I, I think that's to me it's it's a big um yeah, sort of moral clarity kind of moment. So, so you don't. Speaking of off ramps, then you, you don't see uh, because it, I mean, some people are saying, well, uh, there's maybe the possibility of a negotiated peace at this point, given the fact that that Russia seems to be well, is struggling so mightily, and they're you know facing significant casualties, loss of manpower and equipment and the sanctions are, you know, it's now more of a question of what companies are remaining in Russia as opposed to right, which are which are out. And uh, some would say, well, something along the lines of Ukraine agreeing not to seek NATO membership, limiting the size of their military, maybe acknowledging Russian uh, essentially 
uh, ownership of uh, the Crimea area and possibly the Donbass region, which, you know, after all, strongly pro-Russian. Russian's like the native language of something like 75 percent of the population there. And that's sort of a that, that's sort of at least the framework for some sort of a halt to these hostilities, which Putin can then take back to his population and say, hey, listen, this is all we wanted in the first place. We're good to go. Uh, what do you think about something like that? Um, I think that's that's up to the Ukrainians uh, to negotiate and, and what they can live with, what they can't live with. Um, but I don't I don't know that um, uh, Biden calling him a war criminal um, or our, our State Department uh, essentially calling him a war criminal um, makes any difference to to that kind of solution. Sure. What what do you think about the, the feasibility of that kind of solution in general? I mean, there are some people who would say, you know, Ukraine shouldn't give up one inch of territory because that just basically encourages this sort of activity. Right. But then there are others who are saying, well, look what's happening to Ukraine and look at the, the, the horrific right human consequences. If there's something that can be done. And after all, you have this you have this. I mean, the Crimea is already a, a fait accompli right in the Donbass region. Well, that that basically is going to be, you know, a, a kind of regular insurgency sort of thing? And isn't Ukraine just better left leaving that to the Russians? I mean, what do you think about that sort of that sort of reasoning? Um, I, look, I, I think peace is usually preferable to war. I'm going to say usually, right? Because it depends on, on who you're dealing with and what the consequences of that war would be. If If Putin will be satisfied and the Ukrainians can live with uh, a separation of, of a region of their country, um, then uh, again, that's that's up to them to make that decision. Um, in terms of of uh, sort of a demilitarized uh, Ukraine or a promise never to join NATO, um, if it were were me negotiating, I would say no; those those are off the table. Um, for for the very reason that you know. Look, we're we're going to invade you, uh, and you beat us back. Uh, okay, well, here's the conditions. Um, we'll agree not to uh, to pull out if you agree to limit your military um, so that we can invade you next week. Um, that that would seem to be a, a terrible deal. And as far as the NATO membership goes, I mean, there was there was all this talk just a couple years ago about how has NATO outlived its usefulness and so forth. And, um, and I think this proves no. Obviously, it, it it's not. Uh, and and of course uh, Ukraine should be in NATO, and uh, Ukraine of of all countries should be in NATO. Um, the entire reason that NATO exists, the whole reason that uh, countries join NATO, it's it's not because of the the fun annual meetings or the newsletter or the the great member discounts. It's so you don't get invaded by Russia, right? That's the entire. It's the we don't want to get invaded by Russia club. Um, so by all means, the, the countries that are most likely to get invaded by Russia uh, are the ones who, who ought to seek and ought to be uh, given membership. So, so you would disagree with the Chinese that Russia has legitimate security concerns? Yes. OK. So I, I think, beyond which, I mean, I'd say, you know, when, when you start a when you start a, a question, so you would disagree with the Chinese. Um, I yeah. think, you know, the answer that's common. Well, see, um, I, I think that's a problem. Because I think you're wrong on that. I think you're wrong. I'm not, well, I, I don't think you're precisely wrong on that. I think that you're making the mistake of assuming that everyone else sees the world and the international order the same way you do. And certainly, 
to you and to me, we are the good guys. We are the defenders of freedom and democracy and all that stuff that you and I both entirely believe in, right? But that's not how, legitimately, how a lot of Russians see these things. And so just us saying to us, us saying to Putin or to China or what have you that, you know, we're the good guys. We don't have any bad intent. Just don't worry about it. That's that's not I mean, they they have what are to them legitimate security concerns. Now, this is not an acceptable way for them to deal with this. But for us to just sort of poo poo their their concerns and just say, well, you know, you're just being irrational. That's not very helpful either. Well, let's let's put it this way. Do you think Putin is being rational and saying that? Uh, the need for this uh, invasion or incursion or, or military uh, exercise, whatever he's calling it, um, is the denazification of, of Ukraine. Of course. It's all these damn Nazis that are opposing it. I mean, do you think on its face, is, is, that, uh, is that even plausible? Of course not. Um, and I don't, I don't yeah. think for a minute that he believes that. That's just something right. said for public consumption. Right. He did, so, yeah. So what, what I'm, that's what I'm saying is I'm sure not even he believes that. Uh, or if he does, um, then then he's deranged, right? Which is a whole different problem. Um, I'd also point out that you know, look, hey, remember that time Ukraine shelled uh, uh, Russian civilian targets? Of course not, because yeah. it never happened. Um, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that as Americans uh, in the, the the global superpower still, right, by far the largest, most powerful military in the world for the long time, certainly much longer than you and I have both been alive and separated by two oceans from all of this, never having really faced any kind of uh, significant you know, invasion threat. The last one, you know, like what, 1812, right? I right. mean, so – I think it puts us in a very different mental space, and and that's and I think it's just important to understand that the cultural, the mental, the historical understanding and viewpoint of Europeans and Russians is very different. And that's I don't I'm not saying that we need to say that you're right because I think they're wrong. Putin's wrong about this, but it's to try to understand a little bit better that mindset and that. The world doesn't see itself as the U.S. sees it. And to, to keep that in mind when we are trying to get into the get into people's heads, because I think a lot of times the mistake that America has made in foreign policy is assuming that, well, you know what? Everyone just kind of sees the world like Americans and feels like Americans. And that's just not the case. And I think that that blindness oftentimes leads us into some pretty bad decisions. It certainly has in the past. So I'm going to agree with you, like on on to a certain extent, because I think in a lot of ways we're sort of on the same page, maybe. Uh-huh. Um, but we're we're thinking and talking to. So the idea that we, for the purposes of diplomacy, for the purposes of strategic planning, uh, that we ought to put ourselves in the Russian shoes and see the world through their eyes, I think that's an absolutely valid point, right? We need to understand where they're coming from, how they're thinking, how they're really thinking. Um, and what's important to them and, and uh, so forth for, for strategic reasons, for um, uh, diplomatic reasons. Uh, I think that's good because it helps us deal with them uh, either militarily or, or diplomatically. But there's something different to say uh, from saying, I see where they're coming from. Therefore we ought to adopt a solution um, uh, that, that comports with that right. worldview. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because, I mean, you could you could say there are, are people out there and you really need to see where they're coming from, but they could be batshit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to say, yeah, and, no, you're and right. Look, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I, we can't, the people of Ukraine say, listen, um, here's the deal. Look, the Russians are really insecure uh, about this border. They're really, you know, skittish. They have real hurt feelings. So here's the deal. We'd like you to live as uh, under, you know, the, the Putin regime as, right. as yeah. slaves yeah, yeah. Putin. Yeah, no. Um, because we, you know, that's their feelings, right? I mean, I think we can't say that at some point you have to say, uh, all right, we can, we can base our negotiations on this is where you're coming from. Um, but not buy into that worldview. Yeah, no, it sounds like there's really no distance between us on that. So, okay. Um, I, one other thing I wanted to get into is the WTO, uh, most favored nation status sort of thing. Uh, you, how do you feel? Are, are you with the 420 something or are you with the eight on that? I'm with the 420. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's the way. Uh, as I said before, it's sort of when I when I read that headline that we're revoking Russia's most favorite. I was like, what the hell? Why, why wasn't this done? Um, you know, again months ago. Now, of course, at this uh, point, given all the sanctions, this doesn't have any like really, right. But, it's more symbolic because we've already shut off everything else. Exactly. I get that. Exactly. But yeah, I, uh, I kind of thought you'd be on the side of the 420 something like that, and and it seems like. Looking at, um, you know, like uh, kind of looking forward uh, this week, the Atlanta Council released a report saying that uh, they assess that Russia will settle into a war of attrition, try to starve Ukraine, literally, actually uh, try to prompt famine, because, of course, Ukrainian farmers are going to be not going to be able to take care of the harvest. They've done that before. You know? Yeah. So uh, so the war crimes, I think, are just going to continue. And uh, Russia, I, I I think I would agree with the Atlanta Council here that they're going to keep this up for as long as they think it's going to improve their negotiating position in any sort of a final disposition. So even if they recognize that they can't essentially take over Ukraine, this this is going to go on for quite quite a bit longer. And there are going to be an awful lot more people hurt and killed because of this. Well, um you know, there's there are other things to to think about. Um, this is not the first time Russians have tried to shut off places and starve them out. Sure. Um, and uh, we had, uh, you know, a lot of success um, in the Berlin airlift. Um, we had success, um, uh, again, getting humanitarian aid to uh, to the Russian or to the uh, uh, places occupied. Uh, by the Russians. And and look, if if we're to the point of like, we need the UN to do something, which, you know, of course, the UN does absolutely nothing. Um, it's it's tough to argue against humanitarian food aid to refugees. If the Russians want to make that argument, uh, by all means, let's let them. Um, so, I mean, I think there, there are there are resources um, that the West has to help counter that. Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, you mentioned the Berlin airlift. Of course, that's a very that was a very geographically specific area, right? In a much smaller scope, and we've been doing something militarily that you know is is significant, kind of along those lines. But trying to do a humanitarian thing for an entire country is a challenge of a orders of magnitude greater. And so, I think our ability, even if our desire will be that the ability to do that without getting into direct confrontations with Russian forces, that will be extraordinarily difficult. And I'm sure we will do what we can. But I'm saying even with the best efforts of the United States and the rest of the world, it's it's looking to be a, a grim period of time, even more grim period of time. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't disagree with you there. I'm just saying um, 
that's yeah. uh, that's that's not reason to to give up or or not reason to um yeah yeah step up not, and, yeah. and do what we can certainly absolutely absolutely not, not. i don't think you're you know, saying that we no. we should just yeah, no not happen, at all saying just even if we do all we can it's still going to be pretty awful right and of course you're not you don't disagree with that you know the other thing it, i at least i understand that china is trying to play it both ways essentially but i'm at least heartened by the fact that they have they have said that they believe in abiding with international norms and the international community on this which clearly the international community is very much against russia on this and uh, you know it's been it's been suggested that uh, uh that putin and, and she kind of got together and putin said listen this will be a quick operation over before you know it can you just can you just not condemn us and give us a week or two or something like that? And we'll all be mopped up. And of course, everything went horribly wrong, thankfully for Putin. And, and, and the question I guess that comes up then is given the fact that it seems like China is right now, and we hope is unlikely unwilling to give Russia the sort of active support that Russia wants. And it seems like maybe needs at this point, does that make Putin more dangerous? Um, yeah, probably. Um, uh, again, I don't know. Um, I, I, I think that the Chinese will still give the Russian support, um, for a whole lot of reasons, because I think it's in China's interest to destabilize the rest of the world. Uh, China is, is, you know, I think we need to be very much steely eyed realists here. China is not going to do anything to help bring about peace. Uh, to help deter Putin uh, further, uh, uh, or certainly to aid the Ukrainians, uh, at best, uh, China might limit what it does to help Putin. Yeah, um, I, I think you're wrong so, in, in, in a lot of ways about that. I, I completely disagree that it's in China's interest to destabilize the world. I, I think that's just flat out wrong. China has an export-based economy, the second largest economy in the world. And this this Hype, this extent of economic instability is bad for China as well because it's bad for the world. Now, if you want to make the argument that China would like to become a, a hegemonic power, that's a different argument. But the idea that instability as opposed to kind of challenging America's position in the world, well, that that's a different thing. So I, I would disagree with you on that, though. I, again, I, I certainly know that there are uh, you would agree that. Russia and China have those kind of authoritarian ties, but I also would argue that they're very different type of authoritarian governments. And so while they do have common cause on some things, I think that China is looking at this in part as an opportunity to step up as a global leader. And given the fact that the entire world, except for, well, China, a few countries is against Russia here. This is their opportunity to sort of step in. And so I, I definitely see this, I think, a little bit differently, it sounds like, than you do. No, I think um, I think the authoritarian impulse always wins. Um, and, and the Chinese also do not want to condemn any other country uh, that, for you know, for example, seeks to take territory that it claims as its own historically. Well, I mean, China's already made statements about respecting territorial sovereignty of Ukraine. So, right. 
So yeah, right. I, I think you're I think you're seeing this through a through a lens of uh, through a lens that is kind of well, I would argue a, a bit too simplistic and not not really considering the economic connections that China has with the rest of the world, and it's those connections that certainly have uh, uh, that I think would make China reticent to engage in some sort of authoritarians let's authoritarian stick together crusade uh, because of the because of how economically interconnected China is with the United States, with Europe, with the world. And so I just don't see I just don't see that being as part of their part of their strategy at all. Uh, look, I, I, I would agree with you that the, the fact that Putin got bogged down has changed the, the calculus. Um, uh, and now the Chinese are saying, well, maybe we're not as all in on this as uh, as we were earlier. Um, but still, I, I think it's it's uh, naive to think that uh, the Chinese would would do anything uh, but help the Russians. The only question is to the extent to which they they help the Russians, and it could be called humanitarian aid or something like that that they're going to to help give the Russians who are, are you know suffering in this this uh, this conflict. Um, that sort of thing. So it hey, sounds like a prediction, and we will we will it mark is. that down. Yes. Uh, Jay predicts that the that the Russians will give material aid in a significant uh, Chinese. So you know, sorry, the Chinese will give a significant amount of some sort of material aid to Russia. And I, my argument is that they will just kind of keep a hands off sort of position on this and not aid Russia. And so we will we will mark that down, Jay, and okay. see how that. See how that plays out. All right. In fact, I'm marking it down right now. Mark it down. <laughs> there we go. All right. Let's move on to uh, our next story, uh, domestic politics, actually. The Federal Reserve this week raised the federal funds rate by a quarter of a percentage point. Uh, this is the first increase since 2018, actually. And this puts the rate from essentially zero to the 0.25, the point. Five percent uh, range, and this was, of course, widely expected. It also came, though, with Fed officials signaling that they expected the rate to be at two percent by the end of the year, with a median projection of a rate of two point seven five percent by the end of twenty twenty three, and that would be the highest it's been since before the financial crisis of two thousand and eight. Now, in a news conference on Wednesday, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said, as I looked around the table at today's meeting, I saw a committee that's acutely aware of the need to return the economy to price stability and determined to use our tools to do exactly that. And the vote to raise the rate was eight to one with St. Louis Fed President James Bullard actually in favor of moving even quicker go further, with yes. a half percent <laughs> raise. And just for listeners who might not know, the Federal Reserve doesn't technically set interest rates, at least not directly. What it does is it controls the federal funds rate, which is a super short term rate as in overnight at which banks can loan money to each other. And then this in turn influences other interest rates throughout the economy anyway. So, Jay, what do you think about this move by the Fed? Uh, about damn time. <laughs> OK. Uh, no, I mean, this, this, that's no, no surprise, right? I've been saying this for for a while. Um, and uh, uh, I, I think this was good. And, and you will note the the stock market reacted incredibly uh, positively, which it, it, it's it's bizarre, right? I mean, how often does do you get the headline? You know, Fed announces rate increase, stock surge. Um, you know, it, it's it's almost always the other way around that that any raise uh, interest rate 
um, uh, you know, brings about uh, lower stocks, uh, at least in the short term. Um, but I think this everyone is recognizing that uh, inflation is a big problem. Uh, our, our monetary policy that we've had for the last 12 years uh, it has played a big part in that. Um, and uh, we're, we're on the road to a solution. Um, you know, I'm not a, a, a one of these Harvard trained uh, economists who can tell you whether um, uh, this this percentage raise would have been better a little bit more, a little bit less. Um, the idea, obviously, is you you tap the brakes, not slam them on. Um, uh, my preference would have been to start tapping the brakes earlier. Uh, but here we are. So I think it's it's welcome. Um, and uh, I'm 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 hopeful that uh, we continue towards a more a more sane kind of monetary policy. I, I think there was a show with Trey uh, or maybe it was with you uh, a couple months ago when more than maybe more than that. Where I said something to the effect of, well, we're we're all moder- modern uh, monetarists now. Um, and I, I'm I hope I'm I'm being proved wrong, proven wrong on yeah. that. Yeah, and and this yeah, is modern, one of the modern monetary, modern monetary policy theory. being yeah. the uh, I'll give it the shorthand uh, the the belief that you can just really lower interest rates uh, ad infinitum and never get any inflation. Yeah, well, I, yeah, a little more. Yeah, I I, I won't that's get very, in, that's the simplistic version. I won't get yes. into the, the the that that simplistic version, which I think is wrong on a lot of points. But that's another conversation because I won't get into that, especially because up until that point, I agreed with you essentially like ninety seven percent. So I think we'll. Uh, <laughs> So, you're just, so we're just differing on the, the how modern monetary policy should be defined? How modern monetary theory, yeah. I, I think yeah. definitely I would define it. I, I don't agree with it, but I am less sort of overtly hostile to it. Than, well, how would, than how you would you define it? Just so we. I, I would, well, I would define it as, as, well, I would not hazard a definition because I think the, the danger of taking something that is a broad based theory and putting it into something you could fit on a bumper sticker is is in itself inherently problematic. Well, okay, so well let's I'll... let's put it this way. Could could we agree that one of the the hallmarks of modern monetary theory is that uh low interest rates um uh, uh are are I... less I guess uh less inflationary than uh than uh, uh old monetary policy would have held. Mm, I, I don't there, know. There is very much a preference for a belief in you can you can have a whole lot of uh, free money. Well, okay. Now that that at that point, free money. Yes, I, I think generally speaking, you could say that a, a key part of MMT is the idea that deficits, well, in certain instances, for large enough economies, deficits don't really matter nearly as much as traditional economics would would suggest. So yes, and that that's connected to interest rates, and that's connected to inflation and other right. things. But at that point, it gets pretty complex. And while right. again, and that's I, what I'm saying, just for the shorthand. Yeah. Though, right? And so while, while I reject the, the policy sort of in, in general, I also don't want to mischaracterize it, but yeah. So there we go. Anyway. Yes. So, no, no offense. Uh, modern monetary. Theory. <laughs> no. Okay. Anyway. So there, the, there's other fed news as well, because this week 
President Biden withdrew the nomination of Sarah Bloom Raskin to serve as the Fed's vice chair for supervision. And this is basically the Federal Reserve's top bank regulator. Now, in a statement released by the president, he, he cited baseless attacks from industry and conservative interest groups as the reason for the nomination being withdrawn. Uh, and in addition to this nomination, President Biden has made three other nominations to the Federal Reserve's seven-member Board of Governors, as well as the renomination of Powell to be the chair, all of which have been held up because they were advanced as a group along with Raskin. Um, now, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who could have provided that critical 50th vote for Raskin, he came out against her nomination early this week, saying in a statement, her previous public statements have failed to satisfactorily address my concerns about the critical importance of financing and all of the above energy policy to meet our nation's critical energy needs. Now, Raskin's, I should point out, Raskin's nomination was uh, really kind of championed by a lot of climate activists because of her views on the economic risks that she feels are posed by climate change. And in the past, she's argued that the Fed should do more to ensure that uh, financial institutions, uh, well, do more to prepare for the economic consequences of climate change and that financial regulators should play a more active role in transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables. And when she was asked... And we, we- could, what, what, what would be the shorthand for that? What do you mean? Well, I mean, I, I, in, in, in actual real policy uh, world, it means uh, directing uh, funding and loans uh, away from fossil fuels and towards renewables. That certainly, yeah, that certainly would, would, one would think would be part of it, absolutely. And she was asked about this when she had her hearing before the Senate Banking Committee, and she sort of downplayed it. The Senate Republicans were just like, Come on. In fact, Pat Toomey had a great statement. He called it a confirmation conversion, which I which I kind of liked, actually. So. So, uh, Jay, what do you think? We're we're Senate Republicans uh, joined by Joe Manchin. Uh, essentially, uh, were they right to kill uh, Raskin's nomination? Absolutely. OK. And why do you why do you say that? Because the, the Fed has two jobs. Um, one is uh, full employment. Uh, trying to maintain full employment. The other is trying to manage inflation. Um, Climate change is not, should not be in the Fed's portfolio. And once you get into the idea of we're making um, political policy as opposed to monetary policy um, at the, at the Fed, when you're you're making fiscal policy, I guess maybe is the best way to put it. um, That's, that's a real, that's a real dangerous, um, uh, expansion because it, remember the the Fed is doesn't report to anybody. Um, you have you know they're appointed by a uh, president and uh, subject to congressional approval, but in a lot of ways they're they're almost kind of like an, an economic supreme court, if you will. Right? There's um, they 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 are a, a autonomous uh, organization. Uh, the president can't you know rein them in, and, and uh, neither you know Congress, I suppose, can can do stuff with funding, but um, Actually, no. They are, they, are, they have they have their own source of funding, but they also yeah. they serve they serve fixed terms, unlike Supreme Court justices who are in there for life. Uh, right, and, but I think what? How long is a Fed term? Like fourteen years? It's, yeah, it's it's a yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's still it's not life. That's all. But, right. but it's, your, it's, your, it's not your life, point. But your point but when still. You, you give holds. someone a. Let's yeah. put it this way: by the time most people uh, are of the age when they would be um, considered to be a you know. On, on the on the federal the board of federal reserves um they're probably uh, uh approaching retirement um 
And if you say, "Hey, we'll give you a 14 year term," that that's a that's a pretty that's that that's almost life um, uh, for most people. And well, if nothing we, else, again, well, it's, we it's can a long quibble, time. But we you, we agree on the main point. We agree on the main point here. And, and I guess yeah. one thing we maybe don't agree on. Well, maybe it's a matter of interpretation. I agree with you that climate change is not part of the Fed's portfolio. The Fed needs to focus by law, by statute, right, that created the Federal Reserve on those two things, employment and price stability. Now, here's where maybe we disagree. For instance, if you take a look at the inflation that we're experiencing, we've been experiencing for a while now, one of the key factors, key components that's driving this inflation is huge inflation in energy. Right. And so the argument isn't that necessarily that the Fed should be focused on climate change and and energy as a thing in and of itself, but that the Fed needs to understand that volatility in these markets may have a significant impact on on price stability. And so therefore, a concern with sources of energy that are not as subject to these sort of fluctuations does, in fact, play into the Fed's mandate to ensure price stability? Oh, I, I think that's a stretch. <laughs> I mean, again, this is this is one how. of those, well, it kind of sort of impacts inflation. And you can say that about a lot of things. It doesn't kind of sort of impact the, inflation. The, the, the I mean, big, you take a look at the, the numbers. What the Fed is supposed to do is, is monetary policy, managing the money supply, uh, it, not directing capital to go one place or another. That's, uh, you know, or, or putting that, that should be up to the private sector. Or if Congress wants to, um, uh, put in place, uh, incentives or restrictions on, on how things are funded. Um, which again, I, I'd argue on the merits, they, they shouldn't. Um, but, but that's, that's Congress's purview and it's not the, the purview of the Fed. Um, and I, I, I'm, you know the the fact that she was championed by all these these climate activists gives you you know sort of tells you what what you need to know about what they would have expected from her uh, in this in this job and that would have been to make investment in fossil fuels uh, and as Joe Manchin said the all of the above uh, energy economy um, much more difficult and and that's uh, you know th- that's exactly sort of where where Europe is right now. Um, that they they didn't have those those other investments and and now they are in large part being held hostage uh, by by the Russians. So I, I, again, it seems to me this is something that is none of the Fed's business. The, one of the biggest things that conservatives always argue against, and I think ought to be, and quite rightfully so, argue against, is mission creep by by all these these various bureaucracies. Uh, that that you know you start with okay, here's what we do, and then and and. It, it's almost if, if you've ever, ever been involved in in these kind of organizations, um, that's that's precisely what they do. Is like here is your statutory mission, and the very first thing that they set out to do is like, okay, what else can we do? Um, it, it's it, it's it's mind boggling, and she's someone who who is would use uh, what is really sort of a, a massive power of the Fed um, to start uh, uh, putting in place policy. Um, that is, is uh, you know, in, in such a way that, that is, is uh, responsive to no one, right? There's no political recourse. Uh, I, I think that's a big problem, not just economically, but also uh, for, you know, for constitutional government. Yeah, and, and I should say that uh, while I 
while while I disagree with you to a certain extent, I, I do take your point, and, and I certainly think it's a reasonable point to make about mission creep and so forth. And the fact that Raskin was not just nominated to be any old Fed board member, there are only seven, it's like they're any old, it's like a random kind of thing, but that she was nominated to be the vice chair for supervision, which again is bank regulation. Yeah, she would, it, have, it would be, yeah, regulating, um, and I should have, we should have maybe led with that, but yeah, it's it's... It's not simply, um, uh, yeah, she would regulate the, the way and manner in which banks can can lend, and typically that's done through a, a monetary lens, right, making sure that everybody's got the reserves to cover transfers and so forth, um, but but through a policy lens. But, but that said, it's not like she has, she would have vast powers to decree this and that, but but still, even so, I, I take your point, and I, I, I understand and respect your point, even if I don't entirely agree with your point on that, so at least. Well, and let me, let me throw one last thing out. It's, yeah. it's not just as, um, you know, hey, she's an economist who drives a Prius. Right. Um, you know, OK. Hey, you know, something global warming, something I'm worried about. Uh, climate change is something I'm worried about. Um, she has specifically said she wants to use yeah, the power the Fed of the Fed to, yeah. to enact these policy things. So it's. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, the, the difference is that she has a much more expansive view of what's within the Fed's legal authority than, say, you would. Basically. Well, yes. Or. Or, or I would say most people would, but well, I, if you read I, the, the Fed statute, I would so. dis- that's where we would disagree. Anyway, so what this means basically, in fact, I, I don't, I don't know if this matters a ton because what this, well, what this means in in reality is Biden will nominate someone else. It gives the opportunity now for Biden's four other nominations to get through those other three and Powell because. To this point, actually, Republicans in the Senate were saying they were willing to consider those nominations, and the Democrats do have the votes on the floor to approve those three new picks and the reappointment of Powell. And I w- wouldn't be surprised if there were some Republicans who joined on in, in that as well. And just as kind of a, I don't know, kind of inside nuts and bolts sort of uh, thing, if you're wondering how Republicans could stop a nomination when Democrats control the chamber, it's because under the committee's rules to conduct any business, the committee has to have at least two members of the minority party in attendance. So what Republicans on the banking committee were doing is just boycotting the meetings at which Fed nominations were being considered. So if being technically in control of the chamber doesn't necessarily mean that you can just do what you want uh, because of these rules, which is kind of, a, I think, an interesting, important and often overlooked fact of life in the Senate. So. so, Mike, there was it was a kind of a related story, and I, I yeah. should have pulled this up and had this ready to go about just to be the the political makeup of the Fed and the, its board of governors. Um, and the 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 takeaway was not surprisingly that the, the Fed is is predominantly Democrat by by leaps and bounds, something like ninety percent uh, of the Federal board board of governors, and it's even a bigger number. And I, again, I apologize; I don't have these all in front of me. Um, when you when you look at uh, folks who are sort of the next level down, um, but there there is there is very little uh, political diversity. Now you can say, well, um, they are supposed to be economists, not politicians, and I'd agree on that. But uh, often one's one's economics and one's uh, politics are are, are related. Um, I just think that's that's worth noting that that you know we do have this. This, uh, you know, other sort of semi-autonomous branch of government, 
um, that is is controlled by one, uh, um, or at least at least identifies almost exclusively uh, with one political party. Huh. Well, that's um, interesting because you know three of the four uh, members of the board of governors now who are you know, uh, on because we're, we're those those are three vacancies right are, uh, are 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 Republican right Jay Powell. Uh, Mickey Bowman, Chris Waller. So, I mean, I, I don't think that's a really good argument because uh, there are. That... I'm not. I'm not making an argument. I'm oh, just okay, making okay. an observation. Okay, I, I don't even know if it's a really good observation, uh, actually. <laughs> so, uh, because I mean, you know, there there are plenty of conservative economists, and uh, Republican presidents are able to appoint those people when they are presidents to serve on the Fed board. So, I don't really think there's an issue with lack right, of ideological diversity the, on the, the Fed board. The 14 year terms hit at the right times and all that, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I no, I think that's a non-argument. But anyway, um, uh, so we are at the point now where if you are a politics guy supporter, uh, the rest of the episode is coming right up. We are going to be talking about the potential for a COVID surge and what, if anything, the federal government should be doing about it. Uh, the daylight savings time, make it permanent measure that passed the Senate unanimously or through unanimous consent, slightly different thing. Uh, and our long awaited, at least by me, discussion of Joe Biden and the Ninth Amendment, the Forgotten Amendment, maybe even some listener questions. A lot of stuff coming up. If you're not a supporter, just a quick reminder, full episodes, which are ad-free, run around two hours, are available to our Patreon supporters, as well as to anyone who is in a position to financially support the podcast. Uh, to become a Patreon supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support us at Venmo or at politicsguys, as well as through PayPal. All those links are always in our show notes and at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you are not in a position to financially support the show, but you want to get the full episodes, send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will be happy to get you all set up. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really helps us out if you could subscribe to the podcast, rate the show, and leave a review on whatever podcast app you use, as well as sharing episodes on social media. Thanks so much.